You're listening to Catholic Chicago on WNDZ 750 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you programs about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thank you for listening to our program here this morning on a beautiful Monday morning here in Chicago. Uh, It is AM 750 WNDZ Radio in Chicago, and the number for Colin is 312-255-8408. We have a very interesting program today uh, after the uh, big White Sox victory over the Cubs last night that... uh, I, well, I didn't see it, but I, I read all about it. And that is put us in a good mood this morning and other things as well. The weather's nice. It looks like a nice day. And uh, things are slowly creeping back to where they were in Chicago, but i uh, got a long way to go. And so with that said, let's make a little bit of an intro in our show today. Uh, the first guest, basically this show is going to be very... Uh, Weighted towards the heavily weighted towards the Supreme Court actions over the last month, uh, I think most listeners are aware that uh, the Supreme Court has issued many big decisions uh, that affect uh, the ministries of the Church, and we're going to talk about that a little bit—the uh, good, the bad, and the well will be, remains to be seen. And then at the conclusion of the show, we're also going to talk about another big topic that's been in the news lately, both uh, with the Catholic schools and uh, the public schools. We're going to talk to Jim Rigg at the very end of our show, and Jim's going to tell us a little bit about the guidelines and what the Chicago public, uh, Chicago Catholic schools are going to do for plans of reopening um, in what? That's about, what, six weeks from now? Um, so the two guests we'll talk with this morning, uh, first up, we'll talk with Ashley Feasley. She is the Director of Policy for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, their Migration and Refugee Services Department. She's going to talk about the DACA cases, and we'll talk about what is a DACA and what is not a DACA here in a second. And then uh, after that, at about 8.20 or so, Jim Gioli, who is a partner with the law firm of Burke, Warren, McKay, and Saratella. He's going to talk to us about two big cases, the uh, case that impacts what a teacher can and cannot do with regard to uh, religious protections um, that that teacher and employer may enjoy, and as well as another case, uh, it's called the Bostock decision. It has to do with uh, the definition of gender that uh, came out uh, fairly recently, and so we'll try to wade through those and so get a better understanding of what happened and what didn't happen and an effect on the culture in our society. But uh, so with that, let's uh, jump right into our first topic. And with us on the phone, we have Ashley Feasley with the USCCB, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, their Office of Migration and Refugee Services. Ashley, are you with us? Yes. Hi, thank good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, good thank, morning. Thank, thank you for taking some time this morning, and uh, welcome to the program. I think you have done this before. Uh, and so, Ashley, I think what we wanted to do is just explain a little bit about uh, what the Supreme Court did with a, with a pretty big substantial decision that came out recently regarding, uh, I think the case was called the Department of Homeland Security versus Regis, uh, the the University of California. And it has to do with the uh, DACA decision. But you know what, maybe we should do is just, I I think 
part of the problem sometimes is we just launch into these topics thinking that everybody understands fully what we're talking about. And maybe it's best to go back, rewind the clock a little bit, and just talk about what does DACA mean and, and how do we even get to here? What, what does DACA mean and, and what – I think we should probably go back to, what, 2012 when President Obama started? The, well, you can go back further than that, I suppose. But I think the case hinges on what President Obama did in 2012, if, if I'm making some sense. Right. You're absolutely right. So DACA is short for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, and basically what DACA is, is in 2012, President Obama um, issued a memo that allowed young people who had been brought here by their parents but were undocumented uh, living in the United States if they were within a certain age, they could come forward um, and uh, kind of present themselves to the Department of Homeland Security. They could pay a fee. They could submit to a background check and information. And in exchange, they could get a reprieve from deportation and the ability to work legally and go to school legally here in the United States. So the, um, the, the problem was that you had children who were brought here, usually at a very young age, who in essence were raised here, went to school here, and then they were just sort of, what <laughs> they, no, they had no status. So that was the problem. And this, this pool of people was, were, was, at the time was growing and growing. Absolutely. Um, so the, the DACA program, um, actually the original real effort was the DREAM Act, uh, which it's first version was started actually in 2000 by your senior citizen, uh, senior Senator uh, Dick Durbin. Uh, he partnered with Lindsey Graham um, and attempted to pass a bill that would actually give these young people a path to citizenship. Um, uh, you know, since then, the DREAM Act has been introduced uh, in, in every Congress uh, since then and has failed to pass. And so when uh, the DACA program as it exists, what benefits are individuals that the, the children that we just described that were brought here at an early age and who were raised here, what benefits do they enjoy as a result of this program? What legal benefits are they entitled to as opposed if they didn't have this at all? Sure. So I think it's really important to first understand that the DACA program gives no path to citizenship. It is not uh, something that creates permanency for these individuals, and it can be taken away at any time. Uh, what it gives is basically a reprieve from the government um, moving to deport an individual. And then I think most importantly for the day-to-day -day for DACA recipients, it gives legal work authorization and the ability to go to school and participate in the, in the armed services legally. Um, so you are recognized as a contributor um, and you're able to participate uh, in all of those things on the day-to-day. So when 2012, I think it was, when President Obama created this program, it was controversial at the time because I think there were many people that were looking at that and thought he may not have the legal authority to, to enact such a program, correct? Yeah. So um, there was a lot of, I would say, controversy and also, you know, I think uh, 
joy but concern uh, when the yeah. president moved forward with this executive action to allow the DACA program to move forward. Um, you know, I, I always say that the bishops, they support the result of DACA in terms of allowing mm-hmm. young people to move forward to contribute, but they weren't exactly thrilled with how it was created because they've long advocated for a legislative solution for such an immigration change. Yeah, this is this is the this is so uh, symbolic of the problems we have today, which is Congress can't seem to act, and so another entity, branch of government, acts, and that creates reverberations in other uh, branches of government, and that's why we have some of the challenges we do today, and it, it's just failure of, of of Congress sometimes not to be able to, to to address issues, and so we wind up in these crazy situations. So that was 2012. Um, the president, President Obama, does enact this program, and as you indicated, the 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 USCCB did uh, make some positive comments about the result because, therefore, we have the uh, what? How many thousand, tens of thousands of people were there that now, once President Obama did this, were able to stay in the country, live and work without fear of deportation? It was. Did you recall the number? It was substantial. So at the height of the program, it was estimated about 800,000 individuals were enrolled in the program. Now we're at about 690, perhaps 700. Um, And the decrease is for a number of reasons. Uh, One, some people chose not to renew uh, when President Trump attempted to end the program in September of 2017. Um, And you also have people who perhaps through marriage or work, we're able to mm. actually move forward with legal uh, immigration status. So President Trump gets elected, and there was a lot of attention on DACA. Um, sometimes he was using it as a positive thing to try to get something else, and other times negative. But at the end of the day, I think it was Attorney General Sessions made the move to to eliminate the program, correct? That's when this started. Yes. Right. In September of 2017, Attorney General Sessions uh, issued a memo calling the program uh, illegal and moving forward with ending the program um, and giving a six-month wind-down period. And and the justification was because it was how it was created, correct? I think that's what they were saying. It wasn't done properly, so they were eliminating. That I think that's what they were saying, but there was probably other reasons to it. But that's what that was their line, if I recall. Yeah, the, there was a large questioning of the legality of the program um, and. Exactly. Kind of, uh, you know, how it was created and, and, you know, the size of the program also. Um, those those were the main points of his memo. And so then um, then lawsuit was filed. And that's the case. There, there were probably other lawsuits as well. But the one that made it to the U.S. Supreme Court was the one I referenced, Department of Homeland Security versus basically the University of California. And that took some time to get to the court. It did. So there were several lawsuits throughout the country, um, and they were combined into that California case that you mentioned. There was a lawsuit in New York and Washington, D.C. as well. Um, And the lawsuits were initiated, I believe, in January of 2018 or perhaps uh, later on, maybe February. 
and the Supreme Court heard the oral argument for the the opinion, uh, I mean, for the case on uh, November 12th of 2019. And so in November, we have the case uh, that was heard at the U.S. Supreme uh, Supreme Court 2019. And now it usually takes about six months after they hear it for them to release a decision. And that decision came out recently. So let's now talk about the case itself. Um, and it, 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 it the decision came down. It was a close uh, vote, as all of these seem to be. It was a 5-4 decision. Uh, and I believe it was Judge Roberts that was the gave the, the majority, which said it, it, it's kind of an interesting decision because it, 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 it's a win. I, I think it's good for the program, but it's not like a total win, correct? I mean, there's some things that can still happen that could create some problems for those in the program, if I'm not mistaken. That's absolutely right. So the opinion um, – was focused on the legality of the president and his administration ending the program in September of 2017. And that was the question, whether the way that they attempted to end the program was legal. Um, the opinion does actually makes a note of saying that, uh, you know, Justice Roberts says in his opinion, we are not discussing the legality of the DACA program, nor are we discussing the soundness of the policy behind DACA. What we are discussing here today and what we are striking down is the way that President Trump attempted to end the program in September of 2017. And go into that a little so, bit. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No. And so uh, basically, in the opinion, um, Chief Justice Roberts says that the administration didn't really follow uh, the, what's known as the Administrative Procedures Act, which is uh, the normally a, a rule and process for when you end major administrative policies. You have to give people a chance to notice and comment. Um, you have to kind of go through certain stages. And Chief Justice Roberts said, well, they didn't really follow this policy. What is, I think, most notable and what you mentioned very correctly about this is he does not say that the program couldn't necessarily be ended by this administration or any administration in the future. He just says that the way that they attempted to end the program in September of 2017 is not valid. And so did I see some information recently from the Trump administration indicating that they were going to try to address that concern of the court? Or did I just because I, I do think there is some concern about that. Yes. So um, there's been many reportings in the media, uh, some by President Trump himself, mm -hmm. some by his chief of staff. Um, he, the president, the day after the decision, said that he planned to uh, end the program. And then about two weeks ago, he stated that he uh, was planning to provide, as he called it, a road to citizenship. So that's, that's right. almost the complete opposite. That's right. I forgot um, about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think the key takeaway here is that it, it, it's far from over. Um, and, you know, the, while the DACA program remains right now legal and good law, um, we're uncertain whether the Trump administration will attempt to end the program. And so we really should be looking to Congress to get a permanent solution. Yeah. At, at any level, Chicago, Congress should they they have an obligation to deal with this. This is a this is a problem that there are people out there that are kind of still in limbo. 
And it's a shame that we can't—I mean, it's it's amazes me that the way this program was created is controversial. The way it was ended is controversial. The way that it will continue to sort of exist in limbo is still, you know, controversial because there's not a law. There's there's these policies, and then we're just quibbling between the executive branch and the judicial branch as to— you know how the it's all about procedure it's not about the issue per se it 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 really is frustrating i completely agree i i think the one thing and yet again i think this is a place where the bishops are are right on point um i think the one thing we can agree about is that these young people are certainly contributing to our our communities and to our church um i think it's really notable and I, I tell people this all the time, um, but there are 27,000 healthcare professionals who are DACA recipients yeah. who are currently working and dealing with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, their contributions, that's just one element. But what they bring to our country, to our community, and to our church is undeniable. Ashley, when um, the case went to the Supreme Court back in um, whenever that case started, I think it was 2017, were are more are people still applying for DACA? Can they still apply for it, or is that been sort of frozen? Because I think you had indicated they were eight hundred thousand originally, and now they're six hundred ninety thousand. So are people still applying for it as they're made eligible for it because of their age and that kind of thing, or or is that been stopped? So I think that's a great question, um, one that we get asked a lot. Uh, when the lawsuit occurred, uh, DACA was no longer, a, the program no longer took new applicants. So young people who perhaps would have aged into the category of, of eligibility um, uh, under the program were not allowed to apply. With the Supreme Court decision, Justice Roberts reinstates the program in whole and says that um, now young people who perhaps before could not apply are allowed to apply. However, um, as of uh, Friday, we had not, uh, basically when a decision like that comes out, you normally need implementation, basically an instruction manual from the federal government. And we had not received any sort of uh, memo saying how the government is going to be accepting new applications. And so, yet again, another piece of this has already been to a federal court. (laughs) A court in Maryland said on Friday that new applications must begin if uh, the administration is not going to attempt to end the program at this time. And so advocates are waiting now to get instructions as to how people are to apply and learn more about that. What's your sense of the mood of uh, the DACA I don't say recipients because that's not a really good word, but those in the DACA program, it, 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 are they relieved of this decision? Because if it went the other way, that would have been potentially, well, I don't know what, that would have been even worse. So I, I think there's signs of hope for them. Are, are they optimistic that this will be resolved or are they resigned to the fact that this could just kind of be their life for the for the future? So I think I heard your introduction about the kind of surprising Supreme Court session, and I completely mm-hmm. agree. Uh, we had been preparing for a decision uh, that would have immediately ended the program. So I think that there was a moment of, of pleasant surprise. Sure. Um, but to, the, to your point, uh, the program could be ended at any time in terms of the president attempting to end the program and following the, po- the proper procedure. Uh, you know, I- I'm, 
it creates a feeling of uncertainty. But I I say this, and I hear this from so many DACA recipients and their family, the true path to resolving this is not through the courts, but through Congress. Um, And matter of fact, at this point in time, the House of Representatives has already passed a bill uh, that does address the issue, H.R. 6, and now really we turn to the Senate um, to see if the Senate is going to move forward with the solution during this session. Um, I'm not certain about that. I'm not certain how much time that we'll have, given it's an election year and given how many other important things are on the agenda for the Senate. But it really is a special moment where we go back to saying Congress needs to work together in a bipartisan way and find a solution because people's lives are really depending on it. Yes. Uh, heard, heard that before. And you're absolutely right. But we'll keep saying it till hopefully we'll get resolution of this issue. Ashley, thanks so much. That was very great. Very good description. So uh, I think everybody so now understands. Great. Thanks so much for thanks. taking some time, Ashley. Um, okay. Ashley Feasley from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. This is Bob Gilligan. We're going to come back and do some more Supreme Court talk with Jim Jolie. Uh, we're going to talk about the case that involves um, employment re- in a Catholic setting or religious setting. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois. Don't go away, we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks for listening to the uh, program here this morning on a beautiful Monday morning in Chicago. Uh, the number, if you want to call in, is 312-255-8408. And on the line with us to talk about our next Supreme Court issues uh, is Jim Gioli. Jim is a fir- uh, partner with the firm of Burke, Warren, McKay, and Saratella, and he specializes in this area. And uh, to talk about two cases, um, Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey. And then a tangential case we want to talk about is Bostock versus Clayton County in Georgia. Jim, are you with us? Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Jim. It's good to uh, talk to you again about these cases. Uh, They just keep coming and coming and coming. Right. You know, Jim, um, people will be shocked to hear this, but we have not really talked about this, and we we really haven't prepped you and I. But uh, I I have, like in my case notes, I'm wondering— do you see these two cases as tangential or not? Are they related? Well, the relationship between them would simply be that um, after Bostock, which held that the federal discrimination laws, Title VII, uh, prohibition against sex discrimination includes a prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and um transgender and, and gender uh, identity, uh, the question would then be, what are the implications of that for religious organizations whose teachings would, mm-hmm. you know, would be at odds with, with, with those lifestyles or with those identities? And um, the, the relationship between the cases is that um, the Our Lady of Guadalupe case reaffirms what's known as the ministerial exception. And therefore, in the case of individuals who we would classify as ministers, and I want to be clear that in the Supreme Court's parlance, the word minister does not mean an ordained clergyman. 
It's a term of art, mm-hmm. and it really means anybody who performs a religious function for a religious organization. So under uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, the court reaffirms what's known as the ministerial exception to the federal discrimination laws, which is, in essence means that at least on issues of um, selection of a minister, hiring, firing, and arguably discipline, um, that a religious organization can do what it wishes, good reason, bad reason, no reason at all. So when you put the two together, I suppose the outcome of Bostock is that, uh, yes, a person could sue for discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, but a church that teaches that homosexuality is sinful and doesn't want to ordain people who either are homosexual or who engage in homosexual activities regardless of their orientation um, could do that because they'd be choosing ministers. And in that, in that realm of choosing ministers, the church would have the right to choose whomever it wishes uh, irrespective of the discrimination laws. We should probably um, back up and explain to people about what it, – it's probably illustrative in – I think the main case for us is the Our Lady of Gu- Guadalupe case. And maybe we should lay out kind of the facts of that those two case, sure. cases. Yeah. What what was going on there and what led to the lawsuit? And I have to say, when you, when you hear this, it does sound a little crass that, um, you know, we – we were subject to a lawsuit because there was a teacher in the school that was there for like 20 years and we just didn't renew her contract and she sued for age discrimination. I'll let you fill in the details. And I'm just yeah. giving people a heads up that and the other one was being treated for breast cancer. It does sound a little crass. Like, why didn't you hire these people? And right. why do what does the law give us the right not to hire somebody? It does. It's a little counterintuitive. Right. So let's let's back up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, describe what is the ministerial exception and why it exists. Um, at the core of the First Amendment, free exercise clause and establishment clause, is the protection of religious organizations to govern themselves, to control their own doctrine, to control their own identity, to control their own message, to the control their own relationship with their faithful and their clergy, if they have clergy. And therefore, you know, to keep the government out of all decisions and issues having to do with religious matters. Um, in cases that worked their way up through the appellate courts, a doctrine was established called the ministerial exception, in which um, courts found uh, basically an affirmative defense to the discrimination laws on the ground that at the core of a church's identity, at the core of a church's religious liberty, is the right to select its leaders and the right to select its representatives, the right to select the people who are going to speak for it or preach or lead it, and that the government can have no role whatsoever in that decision-making. Otherwise, uh, we either have an establishment of religion, because the government is, in essence, controlling the governance of religious groups, or we have a free exercise violation in that you're depriving the groups of the right to govern themselves or to speak for themselves or to form their own identity or, or phrase their own frame their own messages. So what, what the court said was even the most odious forms of discrimination, uh, which are prohibited in normal employment settings, um, are not a basis for the interference with the governance of a church. Because in any given circumstance, what you might view as invidious discrimination could be a core doctrinal belief of the church. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church only ordains men as priests and deacons. That is a religious belief. In other settings, that would be viewed as sex discrimination. 
as odious as anything you could think of, like firing somebody because they have a disability. Um, however, it actually is a doctrinal belief of the church. For the government to second-guess that would be to interfere with Catholic doctrine. Um, so, therefore, th this exception exists. And then the reason why it is across the board, and we don't make exceptions to the exception for situations where we're sympathetic to the person who's being fired, mm -hmm. is that the, pr the process of figuring out whether the Church is truly acting pursuant to its doctrine or merely using doctrine and ministerial status as a pretext in order to get rid of somebody who they don't like or who is more expensive for them to have or some other reason, the, very, the, the process of figuring that out itself is a First Amendment violation because you'd be just imposing on the Church a secular court's view of what counts as religious and what doesn't. So we don't second-guess those things. We don't make the Church prove that it really had a religious reason um, and, you know, for doing this. These cases came to a head in the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012 in a case called Hosanna Tabor, where a Lutheran school teacher um, was terminated. She uh, sued under the Americans for, with Disabilities Act because she had narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a long analysis of whether or not the church could fire her. Um, the court reaffirmed the – well, for the first time, the Supreme Court recognized the ministerial exception, and they recognized it as a constitutional requirement for the discrimination laws. Second, they went through a bunch of factors that um, established that this teacher was, in fact, what is called a ministerial employee. So you have to be a minister. Teacher. You have to be a minister, according to minister, the 2012. But right. minister defined as somebody who performs a religious function, mm -hmm. not necessarily ordained, not necessarily what you think of as clergy. Mm -hmm. Now, this particular teacher happened to have what they called a commission. She had religious training. There were various aspects that made her more, form, more formal in her title, and, and that helped the Lutheran Church in, in that case. But the court was clear that they were not imposing any rigid formula. They simply looked at the various reasons why she was a minister. So she was, her contract was not renewed in the same way that the teacher in the school in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles contract was not renewed, um, according to the plaintiff who was suing, saying, I was only not renewed because... You know, I had narcolepsy, whereas you have the other teacher in Los Angeles in the recent case saying, you know, that she had a disability in the sense of having been treated for breast cancer. Um, the, the, the reason is, is you can't really ask the question what was really going on if the person was performing a ministerial task. So once we reach the current case, the issues are no longer whether this is the rule. That's established in Hosanna Tabor. Um, since Hosanna Tabor, there have been a spate of cases focusing on whether or not somebody was really a minister. Mm -hmm. And some churches have tried to go as far as saying, well, our janitor is a minister and our landscaper is a minister because anybody who works for us, we consider to be doing a ministry. And courts have generally said, no, you know, those people really are not performing religious functions. On the other extreme, you've had fights over whether people even who were ordained clergy were ministers. Uh, if they said that they were not fired for a religious reason or they were performing some other task, or the percentage of their day spent doing religious things wasn't very great. So it reached. So in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, they have these two Catholic school teachers who both taught religion. And in a sense, this case should have been a no-brainer. Catholic school teachers who teach religion, how are they not ministerial employees? <clears throat> but they were able to surface arguments 
about how they were not, they didn't have any religious title, they didn't have any religious commissioning, like the teacher in Osana Tabor, how one of them was not a practicing Catholic, um, and that if you weren't requiring the person to even be a member of your church, how could you say they were a minister? Um, and arguments along those lines. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals held in both cases that the people were not ministers, or at least at the, at the summary judgment stage, in other words, without a trial, uh, a judge could not say they were not ministers. So the case went up to the Supreme Court, and in the Supreme Court, uh, in an opinion, of seven, the court decided seven to two, in an opinion written by Justice Alito, um, the whole opinion can be summarized in one sentence, which is a, almost a verbatim quote, that the ministerial exception depends on what the person actually does. It depends on what they do. It doesn't depend on some rigid formula. It doesn't depend on, you know, having to fulfill five different factors. At the essence of it is, is the person performing a religious function for the organization? And that can be looked at from any number of perspectives. Yep. Yep. Do, they speak for, do they speak for the church? Do they impart the faith to the youth? Do they represent the church? Do they govern the church? Do they play an important role in fulfilling the church's religious mission? There are any number of ways to get at it. The Archdiocese of Chicago won a ministerial exception case years ago in the Seventh Circuit called Alicia, where the Hispanic communications director was held to be a ministerial employee, even though she didn't have any religious title and, and wasn't, like, in a traditional sense, ministering to the faithful because she spoke for the archdiocese. Church gets to decide who speaks for them. Uh, we recently won a number of ministerial exception cases in the Seventh Circuit involving uh, music ministers. Choir directors. Who right. engaged in, mm -hmm. one engaged in a same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. and the other simply had to, you know, the pastor simply fired the music minister. Um, they were ministerial employees because playing music at Mass is a ministry. Um, so in this case, the Supreme Court took the opportunity to say that um, the Ninth Circuit was wrong, to require that somebody have a religious title, to have any specific set of requirements or any rigid tests, and instead they needed to look at what the employee actually did. Um, Sotomayor and Ginsburg dissented, even though they were both in, I believe they were both on the court at the time, in the 9 nothing majority that, that, that adopted Hosanna Tabor. And really their, their dissents are irrational. They don't, they don't really explain how these people are not ministers they focus on the fact that they weren't teachers of religion and ignore completely – that they were teachers of religion. They focus on the fact they didn't have the training and commissioning uh, of the teacher in Hosanna Tabor and ignore completely the role of a Catholic teacher of religion in the Catholic school of imparting the faith. If I have time, I want to make one more comment yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask a question, uh, but go ahead. Make your one point, and I'll go back to my question. Part, yeah. Because I, I think, it's, I think it's, This is very important. Of, right. the, the significance of the recent case – beyond just reaffirming Hosanna Tabor. That's what I want to say. Um, in Hosanna Tabor, Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion mm -hmm. where he said that while he agrees with the outcome of the case, the court erred in analyzing the factors at all. That really, he believed in, a, in, a, in, an, in an approach of what I would call total deference. Mm -hmm. If the church says it's a minister, it's a minister, as long as the statement is in good faith and made sincerely. Because any attempt to second-guess the Church's own view of what is ministerial, of what is religious, itself is an establishment and pre-exercise clause violation. He has what I would call the maximum view. The Court did not adopt that view. 
Um, in the recent case, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Justice Alito expressly rejects the idea that the person has to be a member of the church in order to be viewed as a minister, and brought, you know, kind of broadens the analysis to say it's not any particular rigid test, that you just simply look at what the person does. And Thomas wrote a concurrence to this opinion as well, mm -hmm. and describes the opinion as a step in the right direction. <laughs> uh, he argues again for the deference, but he says at least in this opinion, the Ninth Circuit was criticized for trying to second-guess the Archdiocese of Los Angeles about the role of Catholic teachers of religion in parochial schools. So functionally, he believes we're getting toward his standard, even if we're moving step by step. It'd be interesting if, if yeah, I, 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 who knows if the court is ready for that. Um, I think you said in the course of explaining that, which is a very good explanation, by the way, thank you for that. Um, it, it, part of this depends on how you fulfill the role of the religious organization. And I, going back to your previous example, I assume that Judge, well, I'll just say this, I know Judge Thomas would say, yeah, the landscaper, he's fulfilling the role of the religious mission. He's cleaning it, making it look good, and that fulfills the role of the religious mission. I, I'm not sure if the other justices would go that far, um, but the fact that they went as far as they did in Our Lady of Guadalupe it, this does provide some relief and some comfort to us because, as you had indicated recently, we've been challenged on some of these cases. And so if we now have to go back to sort of, I'll say, sort of a middle ground, um, which is better than where we were with Hosanna Tabor, if we have to look at what the, what the person does, that is, that is going to help us ward off some of these cases that we've been um, subjected to recently. I think so. This is a good decision, I think, for most for religious employers. Oh, it's an excellent decision for religious employers. It also provides some guidance in the sense that now uh, you can do things with job descriptions right. and, and contracts so that it's crystal clear between the church and the employee that both understand that the employee is performing a ministerial act. I mean, a ministerial function. It, it, it's helpful. It's extremely helpful in any litigation setting if the position is well documented. What about um, organizations that are religious in nature but not um, uh, incorporated as such? A not-for-profit that does that is inspired by the works of the church and it has employees. Would this provide yeah. some protection to them? It would be very better. It would be very difficult to make the argument if the organization itself is not a religious organization, because the ministerial exception uh, is, 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 um, arises from the First Amendment protection for religious bodies to govern themselves. So uh, if you simply had a charity yeah. that was inspired you know, to do good, um, the ministerial exception would not apply to them because they don't you're not grounding it in the self-governance of a religious organization. On the other hand, if you had a Catholic institution like a Catholic hospital, that's different. That, right. in its own right. in its own view, is performing a ministry, um, you get some very interesting debates about how far the ministerial exception will go. For the, I mean, on the one hand, there's no question that the chaplain is a ministerial employee. Right. On the other hand, what about the CEO? Well, the leader of a Catholic hospital, especially if the position is described as fulfilling a Catholic mission, 
if maintaining the Catholicity of the institution is part of the responsibility of that person, if communicating the Catholic faith through the work of the institution to the public is part of the responsibility, then the argument can be made. Um, I don't have case law that you know, where somebody has won that argument. These are things that institutions mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. put into their, uh, into their job descriptions, though, and into their contracts, so that if there is a dispute, it they're helps. at least in the strongest position right. to make the argument. Right, right. I guess I was thinking of— The further afield you go from the traditional worship area, the harder it is to make the argument. Yeah. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because we got to run, but the other case, the Bostock versus Clayton, that does then, um, on the other hand, it provides uh, more protection for individuals who uh, previously had been sued because they are gay. Now they have some protections as individuals, but that, that, that with the other case, may not apply so much to a religious employer. Well, here's the, pro- here's the issue or the difficulty. Um, after Bostock, uh, every non-ministerial employee who works for a religious organization is protected by federal discrimination laws against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, et cetera. So the problem you have is for churches that have a doctrinal objection to those things and an employee who they're not comfortable with because of that, mm-hmm. but who doesn't, who doesn't have a job that happens to be um, one of the ministerial positions. Or, for instance, benefit plans and, and how you administer benefit plans in those kinds of situations. So the issue is going to be what kind of First Amendment protection might be available, either under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, if it's federal law, or the First Amendment directly, in situations where you're, you have what, what I guess I would call a doctrinal, a doctrinal conflict. I mean, you could have an employee who's not a minister yep. and, and yet in their contract you know, has agreed to avoid public scandal as part of their job. I mean, maybe arguably the math teacher in the Catholic school is not a minister. Some people would say that. But the math teacher is in a same-sex marriage, and the Catholic school system doesn't want that modeled for Catholic school children. Um, I'm not passing judgment on whether that's good, bad, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying consider Mm -hmm. that as a hypothetical. Well, does the church have the right to make that decision because they want people uh, who will will exemplify the values of the church even when those people are not ministers? Certainly, members of the Supreme Court would say, no, the protection doesn't go that far. Others might say it would. And that's that's a battle yet to have. Yep. I can see that. So both have been sort of strengthened, and let's see where this goes. Yeah. Jim, we got to run? There's still ground to cover. Yeah, exactly. There always is. (laughs) We'll never get, we'll never tire from that. Jim, thanks so much for an excellent uh, description of that case. Uh, I think that helps a lot of people understand what the court did on that case. And uh, thanks for all your work that you do um, as well. Uh, This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Jim Rigg. He's going to talk about the opening of school, we hope, in August, September. Be right back.
are back here in Chicago at 8.47 a.m. And uh, we have with us on the line Jim Rigg. Jim is the superintendent of schools for the Archdiocese of Chicago. Jim, you with us? Hi, Bob. Good morning. Uh, uh, good, good to be here. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for uh, joining us for a couple minutes here. So uh, we have a plan uh, to reopen uh, come whatever the magic date is, uh, probably August sometime. Uh, so h- how's it going so far? We, uh, we're all set to go, right? We are all set to go. So we are working hard uh, to implement our reopening plan. Uh, so about a month ago in early June, Cardinal Supich announced our intent to reopen our Catholic schools for face-to-face instruction Good. next year. And uh, after that announcement was made, we worked very hard to put together the specifics of our reopening plan that would re-inter- that would integrate the uh, safety and health requirements coming from uh, state and local authorities, uh, but most importantly, enable our students to safely return for face-to-face instruction. So that plan was released a couple of weeks ago. And since then, we have been in the midst of educating our parents about the plan, training our principals and other school staff members on the plan, and otherwise just getting ready for the school year to begin. Before we talk about the plan, and I want to talk about that, um, can you describe what feedback, if any, you received from teachers and from parents about where what their attitudes are about returning or not returning and, and what type of instruction they, they, they are looking forward to? Absolutely. So we uh, did some extensive uh, surveying uh, in the late spring and early summer of our Catholic school parents. Uh, We distributed surveys at many of our Catholic schools. We conducted a series of focus groups, virtual focus groups, and we learned that overwhelmingly our families desire a return for full-time face-to-face instruction. And so uh, we knew that that was important and that uh, informed the Cardinal's announcement in early June. Uh, We also uh, surveyed our teachers and learned that an overwhelming number of our teachers, uh, over 94% of them, uh, were ready and willing and even eager to return uh, for face-to-face instruction, assuming that, you know, there were certain safety uh, protocols in place. So we do believe that this plan uh, represents the interests of our people uh, and also represents the uh, needs of Catholic education. You know, face instruction is really core to our mission. Uh, much of Catholic education depends upon those relationships between teachers and students, that you know, day-to-day interaction that occurs. And so it's important for us to be able to have our students uh, safely back into our school buildings. Do you, um, do you sense any concerns with, with that population at all? That uh, I, I, I assume it's like anything else. If they feel they're safe, they'll feel better about going back. I mean, uh, I think people are understandably concerned yeah. about COVID. I mean, yeah, sure. this is a, a, a global pandemic here. Um, it is a serious disease, and so I think there's understandable concern about safety. Again, our, our plan is robust, and mm-hmm. we did try to anticipate all of the major elements of school operations, uh, as well as all of the, the health uh, requirements and guidelines that were coming from the CDC and the IBPH and the CDPH. We had a panel of medical experts of our own that looked at the plan and helped to inform it. And we really feel that the the plan maximizes uh, the safety of our students and teachers while enabling face-to-face instruction. I think it's important to point out to people, I think they know this, but I think it's also a a good point to reiterate that don't think that when school returns, it's going to be the same school setting and situation that you left in March. Things are going to be different. And to that end, why don't you describe 
what are some of the things that came out of the robust plan that you described, some of the things that will be different noticeably? Certainly. Well, one thing that will stay the same is our commitment to providing a high-quality faith-based education. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are absolutely committed to continuing the education that draws, you know, over 70,000 students from across Cook and Lake County to our schools. But obviously things are going to look different because we, we need to implement health and safety protocols uh, in the, you know, in the face of this pandemic. Uh, so, for example, uh, everybody who is over the age of two is going to be asked to wear a mask at all times while at school. Uh, that's an important part of both uh, federal and, and local guidance. There's a lot of good medical science behind it. Uh, we're going to maximize distancing between people. Um, each student is going to be assigned to a cohort, which will uh, correspond to their homeroom class, and the idea is that they remain with their cohort throughout the school day. And uh, when they're with their cohort, uh, they try to maximize distance as much as possible, but they don't have to maintain a strict six feet or more social distance. They do when they're interacting with people of other cohorts. There are also a variety of guidelines and policies that will apply to activities like lunch and recess and uh, subjects like physical education and music, athletics and extracurricular activities. I mean, we really had to think through every aspect of a typical school day and put in place health and safety requirements to make sure our, our kids and teachers are safe. And this is going to be across the, the, the entire diocese. Um, are you? It's probably too early because there's now uh, the Chicago Public Schools released some information last week, and it looks like they're going to have like a hybrid model of coming in for like Monday and Tuesday, and then schools close Wednesday, and then I think another group of kids comes in Thursday, Friday. It's going to be interesting to see sort of how this plays out. I, I think it's also important to to bring up the obvious that today is July twentieth. Um, right. Schools schools scheduled to open. When when does when does the school is it August? Yeah, you, we don't have a uniform start date, so you know, uh, okay. because there are so many schools, right. uh, each school is at liberty to propose to us for approval of their specific start date. But generally, our elementary schools will start during the last two weeks of August sometime. Yeah, yeah. Generally, the Catholic schools go back before Labor Day. I mean, some don't, but generally they do. Yep. And Most so, of them. Yeah, yep. so, so the, I mean, we're, we're a month out, and, and things change. Uh, boy, have they changed a lot on this issue, right? Uh, and hopefully, if, if the percentage of positivity remains, you know, 3% or under, and, and, and we can get, see, it seems like Illinois has a fairly good control right now of, of this COVID situation that, um, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out between the Catholic schools and, 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 the, and the public schools in terms of what specifically what Chicago Public Schools does. Jim, are you concerned at all about uh, the governor has put together, like I think he now has 11 different regions of the state, and you have Cook and Lake County, and, and it could be possible there could be certain things that are impact Lake County and different things opposed to Cook County. And, and so it looks like we could be in a, in a real state of flux here. So I guess you're going to have to maintain some sense of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID between now and uh, the, the actual start of school in late August. We believe we've put together a plan that mm -hmm. allows for maximum safety for our students while uh, returning to school for face-to-face -face instruction. Uh, we're absolutely going to continue to monitor developments with COVID uh, in the days and weeks between now and the beginning of the school year. And if necessary, we'll adapt our plan. But right now we feel very good about our plan. We think good. it's the right plan for us. It reflects our needs and does enable our students to return to face-to-face -face instruction, which we think is vital for their education, and we think it's what our parents want. 
Yeah. And that's that's the main thing. Yeah. Um, very yeah. good. So uh, any I think I don't want to get into the controversial topic of masks per se. Any feedback on masks? Because I think many people looking at these plans think, geez, two and over mask all day long. How is a four five, six, seven, eight year old for that matter? I have a problem with it. <laughs> Or masking length of time too, uh, <laughs> indoors. Uh, how that's that could be a challenge. And and any any thoughts on on how you're going to be able to implement that? Yeah, we're certainly going to need to work with our students and and teachers and staff members uh, ahead of the school year to help train them right. on how to wear the masks, how to keep them in place, uh, how to maintain them throughout the the entire school day. There are moments where, you know, based upon, again, state guidance, masks can be removed. So at moments, certainly like lunch where kids are actually eating, um, anytime there's outdoor instruction or activity or recess, if students are six feet or more away, they can remove the masks. And so we're really encouraging principals to think through their school day to provide opportunities for mask breaks. But masks are going to need to be on kids' faces, you know, most of the school day, if not all of it. And that may be uncomfortable at first, uh, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll work with our students, we'll train them, um, we'll monitor them, and, and hopefully after, you know, a few days they'll get used to it and we'll be able to move forward together. Yeah, the whole- Again, I, you know, I think it's important to, you know, while we're returning for face-to-face instruction that we do actually keep our kids safe. Right. And, uh, yeah. again, there's a lot of medical science out there that shows that, you know, wearing a mask is important in uh and mitigating risk associated with COVID. Exactly. And I, and I know the whole e-learning experiment that was fostered or foisted on us back in, in March. I, I, my anecdotal evidence is that I think the Catholic schools did very well with that. Uh, I'm sure there's pockets where it went better in, in some areas than in others. But uh, I, I guess that's the backup plan that if we have to go back to that, we, we're prepared to do so. But that's that's plan B. It, it is. I mean, we, we also, in our survey of parents, we met parents uh, very, very much supported the e-learning that took place in the spring. They were very pleased with it and felt overall that it was better than what was being offered in many other non-Catholic schools. Uh, but our parents do want face-to-face instruction, yeah. most of them. Uh, in our plan, we have embedded an ongoing virtual option for families that are not yet ready to return back to school okay. because they have an at-risk family member or they're just generally anxious. So we're encouraging those families to talk to their principal about an alternative ongoing e-learning option. Jim, thanks so much. Good luck. Uh, Great job so far. Let's hope it works, right? Um, I think you're doing the right thing. (laughs) In-person learning and uh, do it well in a safe environment as possible. Thanks for taking some time this morning to describe the plan. Uh, Best of luck with that. And thanks for all our guests, uh, people that called in talk about some of these Supreme Court decisions. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks for listening to our program today. We'll be back on the third month, third Monday, the month of August. Take care. Join us every Monday through Friday at this time for Catholic Chicago. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.